The reading for today is from Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thank you, Nick and Dale. Appreciate that. Um, public education, a very challenging area to make a career, and we do pray for you guys. Appreciate that. Um, I can just tell you that, um, I mean, I don't know how many of you, it's like bad news when you're standing in front of two school principals, let alone <laughs> one, but, uh, you know, anyway. Um, before we get started, by the way, good morning. My name is Frank, if you're new. Um, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the lead pastor. I want to ask our pastor uh, for families, uh, Tyler James, to come up. A couple things that we want to talk about with the person who's pretty much putting all this together and running all of this and supervising all of it through Heather and Trace. So talk a little bit about children's ministry, what's going on there. Yeah, so I talked about it last week. I just want to we're trying to do this regularly to just catch everyone. I know it's still summer and people are coming and going. So if you missed it, uh, we're trying to launch a special needs ministry. And so right now, I think we've got still just two families, but it's something that we want to prepare for. And so we want to be able to welcome them into the classroom. Um, often with those needs, they need someone who's with them, kind of like a buddy in the classroom. And so we're asking to see for those who have a heart for that, for those who even been impacted that in their own family. Um, this is an opportunity to step forward and love these families and welcome these kids into kids ministry. And so um, if you want to, email us, uh, email Heather Miller at redemptionaz.com. Or if you forget, just email Stephanie. She'll get it to the right people. Um, but we'd love to be able to get you set up. We'll do training. We'll do all the stuff that we need to do to get you set up for success in that. And we'd love to have a few more people to help with that. We've already had a couple reach out, so we're just looking for a couple more. I hate to great. go all biblical on you, but isn't this a great way to fulfill the command of bearing each other's burdens in the church? Yeah, yeah, and really being a family, too, to, the, to these families, yeah, supporting one another. It's a cool thing. And then the other thing I'd like you to just mention or tell us a little bit more about is the vision meeting that uh, Trey is having for student ministry. Ooh, okay, yeah. So we've been, Trey and I have been thinking and praying a lot about our student ministry uh, we want it to be something that's so valuable to the church. And so we're trying to have an info night on August, not night, info afternoon on August 4th, right after second service. And this is for families with kids in that middle school or high school, or even who are about to be in middle school maybe, um, to come in and learn about what we're doing as a ministry because it's changing. Our approach is going to be changing a little bit. The program's going to look different. And we want to make sure we're doing everything we can to inform you all and what that looks like to get you to come on board and, and join us in that. So August 4th, 1215, we'll meet in room eight, and, and it's going to be great. Awesome. Thanks, yeah. Tyler. Thank Appreciate you, it. Thanks, everybody. All righty. <clears throat> uh, let me pray, and we'll get into this passage in Philippians. Uh, Lord God, again, we're grateful for who you are, for your Son, your Holy Spirit, and your Word. And it's our prayer today as we are confronted with um, uh, some challenging things and uh, just how clearly Paul uh, tells us that we need to be training our minds in the gospel. Uh, I pray that this would um, land 
Uh, and the only way that's going to land is if the Holy Spirit of God takes the word of God and applies it to the hearts and minds of the people of God. So that's our prayer this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have been going through uh, the book of Philippians verse by verse. And we've been taking pretty large chunks, but today we only have two verses. And I think you can see why. Look at all of those words. Look at all of those. This is a word nerd's dream, I will tell you. Uh, so you're in for it today. Uh, I will say this about these two verses. Uh, this is conjecture, speculation, but I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. If these two verses were found not in the Bible, but in some book of wisdom or, or philosophy, they would be lauded as unassailably uh, correct. They, they would be lifted up and lauded. But, of course, because they're in the Bible, there's always some suspicion that goes along with it. And what we also need to know is that what Paul is teaching here, it is gospel-centered, but we also need to know that it's not necessarily new or revolutionary. Um, the, the philosophers and the sages and the wise people of the day were teaching about these, um, these characteristics uh, quite a bit. Uh, Paul just puts it into the context of Jesus and uh, the gospel. And, and what these things are, whether we're willing to realize it or not, whether we're willing to admit it or not, we want these things in our life. It's just that we get so distracted and off course with the way sin corrupts and manipulates us. So we'll take verse 8 first. Let me just reread it. Here's what Paul writes. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So, first of all, that word finally, it's not the first time that Paul has written the word finally in this letter. He also wrote it in chapter 3, um, verse 1. He's Paul is very similar to a pastor that some of us know three or four times. It appears as though that pastor is landing the plane and then ooh, he just takes it right back off again. Um, but he, here you go. That was tongue in cheek. Like 9% of you got it. So we're going to take a five-minute break so you all can go out and get some coffee and come back in and then we'll be ready to go. Anyway, um, here's what's interesting about that Greek word that's translated finally there. It can mean finally, but in, in many other contexts, including perhaps this one here, it means also uh, furthermore or in contrast to consider this. So it's, it's a way of progressing the rhetoric of the letter writer. However, I think of more importance is the fact that there is a word used six times in this one verse. It's the word whatever. Now we hear that word whatever today, and it doesn't mean very much to us, or it's, it's kind of an insult. I, I, a couple days ago, I was whatevered twice in one day, once by my wife and once by my daughter. <laughs> this is not what the word means here, okay? Uh, what the word means here is pursue in abundance. That's what it means. Pursue in abundance these six things, and then he changes his rhetoric for the last two. So what he's saying, what Paul is saying is don't just think on these things, although that's what he says at the end of verse 8. He says it's more than just thinking about these things. Thinking about them is important, but we also need to do them. The thinking about them needs to lead to action, needs to lead to an application of these things in our lives. Make these things the essence of your life. Now, I'm sure some of you knew this was coming 
uh, word, word nerd alert, I, I got to at least mention each one, and there are some of them that I'm going to unpack more than just mentioning. So we're going to go through them right now. Here's the first word. Whatever is true, that word means that which is not concealed. It's something that's genuine or without a veil, not covered in any way. Now, here's what we need to understand so we have some context. Jesus described his mission to us when he came to this world, this temporal world. He described his mission to us with this word, truth, that he is truth, okay? So, in other words, he didn't conceal his mission, purpose, or his being. This wasn't some big secret. It was always, Jesus was always there, wide open for the people in his time and for us to see and to understand we may not like what he represents all the time, but it's very clear who he is and what he came to do. He came to pay the ransom for his people so that we could be reconciled to the Father through his sacrifice on the cross. That is the gospel. And, and, it, and it wasn't concealed. It was there for everybody to see. The problem isn't that Jesus is obscure or unforthcoming. That's not the problem. The problem is that Jesus, uh, the problem is not that Jesus was oblique or murky or shrouded. The problem is that people just don't want to believe it. They didn't want to believe it then. We really don't want to believe it now. And when I say believe it, it means not just an intellectual assent, but a heart, a practical assent that we're going to live this light out. And we see this throughout the Bible in every teaching in life. The book of Proverbs is a great example. You ever read through the book of Proverbs? It's a great book to read in a month, one chapter every day. Uh, do it on a month where there's 31 days, though. But the counsel contained in Proverbs, again, isn't that revolutionary or unique? It's just that we don't want to believe it or we find it too inconvenient to live it. It's too hard to apply to our lives. Here's what would be revolutionary. Not the teaching, but if we actually did it. That would be revolutionary. I was uh, visiting, a couple weeks ago, I was visiting a business friend of mine who works in corporate and individual wellness, and she started talking about this very idea of applying what we know, and I made her stop because I wanted to write it down. Here's what she said. The challenge with people isn't a lack of information. It's a lack of application. Or you might call it a lack of simple wisdom. It's not even complex wisdom. It's simple wisdom. It's not that we don't know what to do. It's that we don't or won't do it. We want transformation in our lives. But we want it without the transforming work and discipline. We refuse to integrate what we know with how we behave. We're scared, lazy, and desperately committed to the vapid patterns of our lives. Do, do you know for, for corporate wellness uh, people, people in that area, or here you go, another one, physical therapy. I, I, I know some physical therapists. They are absolutely confounded by the, pack, by the fact that people will go and pay them money 
and they will then tell them what they need to hear, what they need to know, and then they won't do it. And they keep going back every single week. Tell me more so I can't do it. And here's a check. I, it is fascinating. That's our problem. It would be revolutionary if we just do it. That's what would be revolutionary. So back to the truth discussion. And I'm going to take it to an even deeper level. Because Jesus is eternal, and he is the ultimate truth represented in this passage, the truth that Paul is speaking about here is transcendent. We talked about this word last week. We need to talk about it again. In other words, the truth that Paul is talking about here is not bound by space or time. It's always true in every context. So we hear a lot today about my truth. What's my truth? You have your truth, I have my truth. And truth is always contextualized. You can't, you can't move truth in and out of different contexts. We hear this all the time. We hear it in academia. We hear it in the marketplace. We hear it in, in, in the public sphere. We hear this all the time. And that's okay. Because we do have our own truths. And we do have contextualized truth. The problem with that truth is that it may or may not be reality. Just because it's real in your mind doesn't make it real. It depends. But here is a true truth. Here is a true truth. We are often fooled by our truth. We are often fooled by what we call our truth. We often believe that we have things figured out, but we've been deceived by ourselves. In, in Galatians chapter 6, Paul writes, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. You will reap what you sow. If you sow to your flesh, you will reap corruption, destruction, or death from your flesh. But if you sow to the Spirit of God, you will reap eternal life. Well, back up in verse 7 where he starts that, when he says, do not be deceived, that verb there, be deceived, is in the first person singular, which means... Do not deceive yourself. Who is our favorite person to deceive? It's not our spouse, our friends, our boss, or our, anybody in our family. Our favorite person to deceive is ourselves, and Paul knows that. Okay? So no matter what, your truth, my truth, this individually contextualized personal truth is not transcendent. It's not true truth, as Francis Schaeffer used to say. Paul is very careful here to make sure that the truth that we are pondering and noodling on is God's truth with a capital T. So, next word, whatever is honorable. The word means venerable. In other words, it cannot be withered by, by attack. It's time-tested. One scholar writes this, uh, the word means that which is accorded honor and respect because of age, wisdom, and character. In other words, it's not the newest the latest, the greatest church of what's happening now. All these church fads that come and go, and we're still left with the gospel. So we're going to proclaim the gospel. Uh, I, I call this the anti-chronological snobbery word. Okay, Chronological snobbery, uh, a, a, word, a term that I believe C.S. Lewis coined, uh, is the ridiculous and arrogant but persistent notion that if something is old, it's no longer relevant or of value. Have you noticed that the gospel, the Bible, and the Christian faith have been tested by time? Has anybody noticed that? 
it's been pretty persistent for the last 2,100 years. It has not gone away. It's moved around, but it has not gone away. I continue to hear, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, I just continue to hear this. If the church doesn't change and keep up with the culture, the church is going to fade away and never be again. Like that's never been said before. Oh, but this time we really mean it. The gospel is not powerful enough for the changes in culture. We need to change. I hear this all the time. Move in this direction. Move in this direction. Move in this direction. And it's always away from Jesus and the gospel. That's the problem. Okay? And that same thing has been said and written about every century since Jesus rose from the grave. Every single century. So here's the definition of chronological snobbery. I'm better and smarter than everyone and everything that ever existed before me simply by virtue of being alive today. That's what chronological snobbery is. I'm smart because I'm now. I don't even have to read anything. I don't have to know anything. I'm just smarter because I'm alive today. All those people are dead. They didn't make it. Paul reminds us that venerability, not vulnerability, venerability is worthy of our attention. Then he says whatever is just it's a word that means that we're, we're supposed to take seriously whatever's righteous, holy, and innocent. And it is a word that describes justice. And, and here you go. I want to come to grips with this. Um, justice, the word justice really doesn't need a modifier. I don't know if you've realized that. The word justice, I know this is going to just shock some of you. The word justice really doesn't need a modifier. Either something is just or it is not just whether it's economic, systemic, social, racial, or political, a situation or an action is either just or unjust. That's it. The gospel is just, and we are to react and act accordingly to that in every context. We don't need to be prodded or have our uh, inspiration heightened by other words. We need the gospel to recognize what is unjust and then be the church in the midst of that, whatever it is. And to take it a step further, if, if we focus on what is just, we will focus on God's goodness, order, and purpose and submit our worldview to that. That's what Paul's looking for. He says whatever is pure, the word means that which is faultless, whole, or unfragmented. It's, it's undiluted. And then he says whatever is lovely. The word means pleasing and acceptable. It means that which adds value, especially to others who are around you. So here's the way Christians would say that. You have been blessed, now be a blessing to others. Another way to look at it is that we should be adding value wherever we are. We should be adding, here you go, you want a job? You want to do well in your job? Add value in every context that you're in. Figure out how to add value. And, and here's a key. Paul uses this word to call attention to the importance, the essential nature of our lives being lived in relationship as givers and servants. That's what he's calling our attention to here. Whatever is lovely. Live life in relationship as a giver and as a server. Now, how often do we talk, you heard Nick talk about it today, how often do we talk about the importance of being involved in deep, genuine gospel-centered relationships and 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 to be that person in your world of influence whether that world of influence is large or really really tiny 
who adds value to everything. In other words, a person who gives, a person who serves, and a person who sacrifices. That's what the word lovely means here. We are created in the image of God, and the primary ways that we bear God's image is to be in relationship and to be a blessing and to add value to those who are around us. In the marketplace, at home, with friends, wherever you are, every context. That is loveliness. He says, whatever is commendable, the word means reputable, those things in life that we can confidently recommend. It's that which can be trusted. It's when somebody asks you to write a letter of recommendation for them and your heart doesn't sink, but rather it, it, it is lifted because you can't wait to write that letter of recommendation. Commendable, interestingly enough, it's the sixth word in this list. Uh, a couple of scholars wrote that this word commendable, that, that which can be trusted, that which is recommended, is often the result of these first five items. Whatever's true, whatever's just, whatever's lovely, whatever's honorable, whatever is pure. And then word seven, he says, if there's any excellence... The word excellence means that which is virtuous and filled with integrity. It's not that we're looking for perfection. That's Jesus. He did that already. But what we are striving for is an effort that is pure, a life that's void of indifference, apathy, and a lack of direction. And then lastly, he says, anything worthy of praise. It means laudable, that which uh, we can testify to as, it's, as to its worthiness. So Paul says to think about these things, these eight things. Think about them. And of course, the word think is not just a simple passing glance. It's not just, you know, consider it for a moment. The, the, the word specifically means that we are to dwell on these things. Spend time with them in our minds. They're not going to shape our minds and therefore lead our hearts if they're not in our minds a lot. If they just pass through, they're not going to shape us. Uh, literally, the, the word to think about them uh, it, it could be translated to ruminate. Does anybody know the origin of the verb, ruminate, to think on constantly? It comes from the word ruminant, which is a noun for animals that chew cud. You know how a cow will just sit there and chew cud? Okay, that that's what the word ruminate means. It means that you're just going to put this in your mind and chew on it over and over and over and over again. Paul says, put these things in your mind and consider them always. Turn them over and over in your mind. And, and here's the thing. We know how to do that because we do that with thoughts of revenge and retribution, right? Right? We dwell on the pleasures of sin. Think about them a lot. We consider longingly that which is wicked and hidden and saucy. We, we consider these things longingly. Paul says, take that energy and toward it, toward, turn it toward these things that are worthy of deep pondering. Because in these things, it is in these things that we are going to find fulfillment and joy. Which is what we're searching for, what we're looking for. Because Christ embodied every single one of these things. Set your mind on things that are Jesus-like and gospel-centered. True, honorable, right, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. And this is a key. It's never enough to 
to, to stop dwelling on the bad stuff. This is, this, is, this is the big thing that I think most of us miss here. Paul isn't saying just quit thinking about the bad stuff. He's saying you have to then direct your mind toward the proper things. And we're going to get into the psychiatry of that in, in a few minutes. But here is just one example of what I mean about how important it is to think about such things that are beneficial. This is from... Uh, uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff's book, The Coddling of the American Mind. Gene Twenge, social psychologist at San Diego State University, in discussing the precipitous rise in the last 10 years of depression, suicide, and suicidal thoughts among teenagers and early 20-somethings, talks at length about the research in this area that shows one of the main reasons all of this depression and suicide is happening. There are just two activities, just two activities, that are significantly correlated with depression and other suicide-related outcomes. Electronic device use, such as cell phones, and watching TV. On the other hand, there are five activities that have inverse relationships with depression, meaning less depression and fewer thoughts of suicide or actual suicide. And here are those five things. Sports and other forms of exercise, attending religious services, reading books and other, here you go, print media, in-person social interactions, and doing homework. Now, do you notice anything different about these two lists? Screens. Screens. Screens take way less thinking than those other five antidepressant activities. This is what the research shows. Twenge cites research that clearly shows, here you go, I'm about to really make some students angry, but you parents listen up, okay? She clearly shows how limiting your teenagers and children to less than two hours screen time per day is critical in reversing this depression trend. The limits ultimately push them toward these other activities that help reduce depression, activities that require more thinking. 2 Corinthians 10, Paul writes this, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ Jesus. What captivates our thoughts will captivate our behavior and relationships. It will captivate our very life. This is not revolutionary. It would be revolutionary if we did it. And then verse 9, Paul writes this. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Heard and seen in me. What, is, what does Paul mean by this? The, Cody mentioned this a couple weeks ago. The common ancient decorum was to imitate your mentor. That was the common ancient decorum. But there's a slight difference here with how Paul wants you to do that. Paul, in other New Testament places, says the reason I want you to imitate me is because I'm imitating Christ. In other words, you're going to imitate Christ. That's who you should be imitating. But again, he says, don't just think about these things. Put them into practice. And again, I'm, I'm going I'm to repeat what, part of what my, my wellness friend said. The challenge today is not a lack of, of, of information. It's a lack of application or wisdom. We want transformation in our life, but we want the transformation without the transforming work and discipline. We refuse to integrate what we know with how we behave. 
And, and, this is the second time in just three verses. Look back at verse 7 last week where Paul talks about God and peace being present with us. That must mean something if he said it twice in three verses. And here's what I think that means. Jesus has given us great gifts, the best gift being our salvation by faith through grace. But also, he promises us that he is with us. The gift of his everlasting presence. But that presence doesn't mean much if we don't engage. We have to engage. It's like praying for the Holy Spirit to be here. We don't have to pray for the Holy Spirit to be here. What we need to pray is that we would welcome the Holy Spirit because the Spirit's here. Okay? And the way we engage is through prayer. We talked about that last week. And then through gospel-centered thinking and then the application of that thinking. I want to close with a very difficult topic that has everything to do with this. Um, and this is a great point of application, I believe. Um, there's a book that came out maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago, written by a psychiatrist named William Struthers. And the name of the book is Wired for Intimacy, How Pornography Hijacks the Brain. And what he talks about, and by the way, this research has been proven out in a lot of other places, but if you want the definitive book, this is the book, Wired for Intimacy by Struthers. He talks about how our brains have these neural pathways, and these pathways are formed by the chemicals that are released in our brain. And the more certain types of chemicals are released, the more uh, your neural pathway will actually start making a groove that starts to demand more of that chemical. And the most powerful chemical is, of course, dopamine, which is the chemical that is our pleasure center. It, it's released whenever those of you who used to smoke cigarettes, as I once did, and you have that first drag on a cigarette and it's just absolutely wonderful, that's dopamine going through your brain and you're, you're creating that neural pathway. The more the dopamine goes through there, the deeper that pathway gets and the more dopamine it, it needs. Did you hear that now? Okay, you hear that? The, the more you do meth, the deeper that neural pathway is going to go and the more you need that dopamine going into that neural pathway. The more you... Look at pornography, the more you're going to become addicted. Here's what's revolutionary about this that a lot of people don't understand. Pornography addiction is a chemical addiction. And the only way that you can reverse those neural pathways is to start creating new and different neural pathways. So here's what I want you to see. By the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit, Paul is talking about something in the first century here that God knew about that we've only discovered in this last century. And that is neurology and psychology and psychiatry, the science and the medicine behind these addictions. Paul was talking about it 2,100 years ago by the power of the Holy Spirit saying, here's what you need. And you can't do this without the gospel of Christ. We need new, healthy thoughts. And it's not just pornography, but it's everything. We need new and healthy thoughts. It's possible to actually train our minds. We have to do it through thinking. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul writes this, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
And that transformation starts and ends with the gospel. You don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you feel completely trapped by pornography? You're certain that this is it. You're never going to do it again. And then you do it again. It's powerful. Satan knows how to get us. He can do it through any kind of scheme. It doesn't matter what it is. We need to be rooted in the gospel and thinking about these things. And it's going to take a while. It takes time to transform our lives. We are transformed in an instant by the gospel. We are seen as righteous and holy by God, no matter what, in an instant. But in this temporal world, our transformation takes time and it takes steps. It takes discipline. It takes work. It takes a community. It takes faith. It takes the gospel. Now, I want to be clear about this before we close. Do you see how I've done a couple of finallys already? I just worded them differently. Okay. Uh, th- this pornography thing I've discovered is, is like uh, nobody wants to talk about it, but so many of us are caught in this trap. We just don't talk about it. We talk about a lot of other things because we know that they don't have much or anything to do with us, but they need to be fixed. But this one, this one is hard for us. And, and there are two different reactions that I've seen to the pornography issue that are unhelpful. One is complete exclusion right out of the gate. You're ostracized. We are not going to walk with you. You're a bad person, sin, boom, you're done. I've seen that reaction, schools, churches, whatever. But I've also seen the reaction the other way. Somebody comes and confesses this sin, and the next thing you do, you, you do is before they've experienced any gospel transformation, you want to get them on a platform and, and talk to them about, about their sin and how they're really wrestling with it and all that stuff, and you make a rock star out of them, and yet transformation hasn't even come yet. All they've done is finally open up and confess their sin. So we're not looking for rock stars, and we're not looking for shame. My prayer, and I'll tell you, it's not a perfect science, believe me. My prayer is that we would be a church that finds that gospel center, that that helps us understand that shame is not helpful, but turning somebody into a rock star because of their sin is also not going to be helpful. But we just want to quietly and perseveringly and diligently and lovingly walk with you in the midst of this. Honor your dignity, honor your privacy, but also walk with you. That's my prayer that this church could be when it comes to this issue. And any other sin issue, but I know this one is something that just plagues so many of us and we just don't want to talk about it. That's what the gospel should do. That's what Jesus calls us to do. That's the picture of the cross. Crucifying that sin right up there on the cross with Jesus and then living it out. Let's pray together. Lord God, this is very challenging, I know. But our hope is in the fact that you have done this already. You've gone to the cross, and you have given us the encourager, your Holy Spirit. And so, God, I just pray that that this would be a time when, when we can be the church, when we can bear the burdens of others, 
And we can do it in a compassionate, accountable, and Christ-centered way. Help us to do that. Please, God, please help us to do that. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.